This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Because we didn't invest enough, I think we will dig through this hole, but it will take a few years. I wish I could solve all these issues in, in three months or six months, but I just think the reality is that solving some of these questions is just going to take a longer period of time. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today, you may remember from such social media platforms as Facebook.com. Uh, my guest is Mark Zuckerberg, who has been in the news along with his uh, platform quite a bit lately. I have been thinking in the past couple of months about something he wrote in, I think it was February of 2017. And it's really this remarkable document that I recommend you go look up if you have some time. It's a, it's a manifesto about what Facebook can and should be for the future of the world. And it is, this was a moment when people were actually talking about Zuckerberg as a 2020 presidential candidate. He was on this somewhat peculiar nationwide tour where he was, you know, meeting with farmers in the Midwest. And I mean, it, it had a lot of political dimensions to it, but he came out with his manifesto where he offered up a really profoundly ambitious vision for Facebook, a, a vision for Facebook that did nothing less than situate Facebook within a broader architecture of human social evolution. And, and talking about humankind, he wrote, today we are close to taking our next step. Our greatest opportunities are now global, like spreading prosperity and freedom, promoting peace and understanding, lifting people out of poverty, and accelerating science. Our greatest challenges also need global responses, like ending terrorism, fighting climate change, and preventing pandemics. Progress now requires humanity coming together, not just as cities or nations, but as a global community. And Facebook, he said, could be, quote, the social infrastructure that created that global community. That was a, a grand vision. It was a, it was a vision that was supranational. It was bigger than running any one country. It was running the thing that would be the mediating platform between all the countries, the thing that would allow humankind to expand its cooperation to a level it had never been before. One thing we've seen over the, the intervening time, and, and in some ways, things that Zuckerberg was beginning to respond to in that manifesto is that, well, possibly if you create that social infrastructure, if you make it easier for nations and ideologies and ethnic groups to collide into each other, to communicate both with and about each other, rather than learning how to cooperate, we'll fall apart. We will divide. We'll learn how to fight. There have been a lot of individual news stories recently, Cambridge Analytica, Russian bots. We talk about those, but 
I didn't want to spend our main time on them. I wanted to talk about what Facebook has become. With 2 billion users, it is something that is bigger than any one government. And I say this in the podcast, but when it fails, it fails with consequences that are like that when a government fails. So how do you govern something? How do you manage something? How do you create accountability in something that is so vast in scale, that is a private corporation run by a CEO who has control over the voting stock that can literally change the world, change elections, change the future, at least in the near term of humanity? But is again, a private corporation. It is not a government. It is not run like a government or run like a multinational institution like the UN. There's a lot of trust that needs to be there, that needs to be built. And Facebook, if nothing else, is suffering a crisis right now of trust. So I'm grateful to Zuckerberg for coming on the program. We talk about this and how he's thinking about building that governance structure, what he thinks about Tim Cook's shot at him the other week that Tim Cook would just never be in this position because his business model is a more virtuous business model. Zuckerberg has very strong words about that. We talk about what these problems are Facebook is facing, what it will take to solve them. I don't want to preview the whole conversation, but but suffice to say, I think that it is worth hearing the scale of the problems Zuckerberg is thinking about, the scale of his ambition in solving them, and just where he is right now, where he is and where he thinks Facebook is in the plans he has for it. As always, you can email me and give me show feedback and ideas at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But without further ado, here is Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook. So I want to begin with something you said recently in an interview, which is that Facebook is more like a government than a traditional company. Can you expand on that point a bit? Sure. So one of the things that we have to do is basically people share a whole lot of content and then sometimes there are disputes between people, right, around whether that content is acceptable, right, whether it's hate speech or valid political speech, right, whether it is an organization which is, is, is deemed to be a bad or hateful or terrorist organization or one that's expressing a reasonable point of view. And you know, I think more than a lot of other companies, we're in a position where sometimes we have to adjudicate those kind of disputes between different members of, of our community. And in order to do that, and one of the things that I think we've, we've had to do is build up a whole set of policies and governance around how that works. But it's, I think it's actually one of the most interesting philosophical questions that we face is, you know, now with a community of more than 2 billion people all around the world in every different country, where there are wildly different social and cultural norms, uh, one of the things that, that I think we're going to need to work on a lot going forward is it's just not clear to me that you know, us sitting in an office here in California are best placed to always determine what the policy should be for people all around the world. And I've been working on and thinking through you know, how can you set up a more democratic or community-oriented process that reflects the values of people around the world. And that, that's one of the things that, that I, just, I, I really think we need to get right because I, I'm just not sure that the current state is – is, is a great one. I'd love to hear about even knowing it's nascent where your thinking is on that, because one of the ways in which your comment that it's more like government struck me is, is recognizing that when Facebook gets it wrong, the consequences are on the scale of when a government gets it wrong. It, elections can lose legitimacy in a country or, or ethnic violence can break out. And, and it made me wonder, has Facebook just become too big and too vast and too consequential for 
normal corporate governance structures and also normal private company incentives. I mean, we have very few things that run just like a private company where if something goes awry, it can have the effects of of Facebook. Has it made you question any of that? Well, I think we're continually thinking through this. You know, as the internet gets to broader scale and some of these services reach a, a bigger scale than anything has before, we're constantly confronted with new challenges. And I try to judge our success not by, you know, are there no problems that come up, but when an issue comes up, can we deal with it responsibly and make sure that um, that we can address it so that, that those kind of issues don't come up a, a, again in the future? You know, you mentioned our governance. One of the things that, that I feel really lucky that we have is this, this company structure where, you know, at the end of the day, it's a controlled company. We're not at the whims of short-term shareholders. We can really design these products and decisions with what is going to be in the best interest of the community over time. And I think that that ends up being just really important and has at at many important moments through the company's history. I think that's interesting because it is one of the ways you all are different. And I can imagine reading it both ways. Uh, On the one hand, you're more insulated from short-term pressures of the market. On the other hand, you have a lot more just personal power given your control over the voting stock. There's no quadrennial election for for CEO of Facebook. Um, And that's a normal way that uh, at least democracies run accountability. Do you think that makes you in some cases less accountable? I mean, not that you would ever make the wrong decision, but if for some reason you did, if, if things began to go awry, would that be more dangerous for Facebook given your centrality to it and the the scale of the company? I, I certainly think that's a fair question. My goal here is to create a governance structure around the content and the community that reflects more what people in the community want than necessarily what short-term oriented shareholders might want. And if we do that well, then I think that that could really break ground on governance for this kind of an internet community. Uh, but certainly if we if we don't do it well, then, um, then I, I think we'll fail to handle a lot of the issues that are coming up. So you mentioned you know, wanting to get a sense of how I'm thinking about some of these things going forward. Here are a few of the principles. So one is just transparency. Right, right now, I don't think we are transparent enough around the prevalence of different issues on the platform. You know, you hear a lot of anecdotes about, about issues. Journalists do a good job surfacing, uh, whether it's fake news or, or other kinds of problematic content. But you know, we haven't done a good job of publishing and being transparent about the prevalence of those kind of issues and the work that we're doing and the trends of how we're driving those things down over time. So I think that that's one important measure of accountability and governance. A second is some sort of independent appeal process. Right now, uh, if you post something on Facebook and someone reports it and, and our uh, community operations and review team looks at it and decides that, that it needs to get taken down, you know, there's not really a way to appeal that. And I think in any kind of good functioning democratic system, there needs to be a way to an appeal. And I think we can build that internally as a first step. But over the long term, what I'd really like to get to is an independent appeal as well. So, you know, maybe, you know, you have it where some folks at Facebook make the first decision based on the community standards that, that are outlined, and then people can, can get uh, a second opinion. But then you can imagine even some sort of structure almost like a Supreme Court or appeals board that is made up of independent folks who don't work for Facebook, who ultimately get to make the final judgment call on what should be acceptable speech in, in a community that reflects the social norms of and, and values of people all around the world. But 
you know, I think we're breaking new ground here. We need to be thoughtful. And I, I do think that the current structure that we have gives us the ability to experiment with things like this. But um, it's a big open question about whether we're going to get to the right place and, and do that quickly. I'm really interested to hear you begin talking about this idea of independent governance structures, because one way that governments do this is they have institutions that are at cross purposes with each other that have different kinds of legitimacy. And I wonder how much that influences your thinking on transparency, too. Uh, when I hear you say that you need to do a better job talking about how many people are affected by something or what you're doing internally to actually solve it. One of the themes for the past year that I think has been damaging for Facebook is, you know, initially the answer is very, very few people saw fake news or very, very few people saw anything from Russia-related bots. And then slowly it comes out, no, actually it was more millions, maybe hundreds of millions. And it wasn't the transparency there. It was it was how to know you could trust what was coming out. And I, I wonder if part of transparency for you all has to be creating modes of information that are independent in their own ways. Yeah, I think that that's a good point. And I certainly think what you're saying is a fair criticism. You know, it's tough to be transparent when we don't first have a full understanding of, of where the, the state of some of the systems are. So certainly, you know, in 2016, uh, we, we were certainly behind having an understanding and operational excellence on, on preventing things like misinformation, Russian interference, and you can bet that that's just a huge focus for us now going forward. You know, right now in the company, I think we have about 14,000 people working on security uh, and and community operations and review just to make sure that we can really nail down some of those issues that, that we had in, in 2016. In 2018, I think is going to be a big year for us and for elections around the world. There's not only the really important midterms here in the U.S., but there are presidential elections in India, in Brazil, in Mexico, in Pakistan, uh, in Hungary, and a number of other countries. And I, I think it's fair to say that we we were not as on top of that as we should have been up front. But one of the things that I think we've needed to do is now go develop the playbook so that we can both be transparent about, about what we're seeing and just be much more effective about eliminating some of these risks. So if you talk about elections for a moment— you know, after the 2016 U.S. elections, um, a number of months later, there were the French elections. And for that, we spent a bunch of time developing new AI tools to find the kind of fake accounts spreading misinformation. And we we took down, uh, I think it was more than 30,000 accounts. And I think the reports out of out of France were that people felt like that was a much cleaner election on, on social media. A few months later, there were the German elections. And there... You know, we augmented the playbook again to work directly with the election commission in Germany, right? And the idea is that, you know, as an internet company, we'll have ability to see some of the content that's um, in, in some of the issues that, that might be happening in an election. But if you work with the government in a, in a country, they'll really actually have a fuller understanding of what are, what are going on and what are all the issues that we would need to focus on. And again, by working with the German government, we were able to focus on a few specific issues. And I think there, again, people felt a lot better about how that election went on social media. And then fast forward to you know, last year, 2017, in the special election in Alabama, we deployed a number of new tools that we'd uh, developed to, to find fake accounts who were trying to spread false news. And we got them off uh, before a lot of the discussion around the election. And again, I think we felt uh, a lot better about the result there. So I think we felt we felt good about the pace at which our tools to detect this 
are improving compared to the adversaries that we're up against. Let me ask you about your tools to punish it, though, because the upside of being able to to move a national election using Facebook is very high because, you know, look, if you get caught, if you're Russia and you are executing a massive bot operation, a sophisticated one, to try to move the, the U.S. election, well, you know, if you get caught hacking into our election systems, which they also did try to do, and Hillary Clinton wins, the consequences of that can be really severe. The sanctions could be tremendous, and you could even imagine something like that escalating up into armed conflict at a certain level. If you do this on Facebook, you know, maybe you get caught and they shut down your bots, but one thing that you don't have in not being a government is really the ability to punish. Um, if Cambridge Analytica messes with everybody's privacy, you can't throw them in jail in the way that if you're a doctor and you do recurrent violations of HIPAA, you face very severe legal consequences. So I, I wonder, one question I have is, do you have capacity to do not just detection, uh, but sanction? Is there a way to, to increase the cost of using your platform for these for these kinds of efforts? So yes, there, there are a number of things that we do. I mean, as, as you say, since we're not a government, there are fewer penalties that we can impose on countries that might be trying to act in this way. Um, although, you know, having a tool to get information out about what you're doing in your country is relevant and, and having the ability to, to block bad actors is an important one that we don't take lightly and in, in terms of when we use. It might make sense to go through, there are three big categories of fake news. And I can walk through how we're basically approaching this. There's a group of people who are like spammers. These are the type of people who in pre-social media days would have been sending you Viagra emails. And the basic playbook that you want to run on that is just make it non-economical for them to do that. Uh, so the first step that we did, once we realized that this was an issue, was, you know, a number of them ran Facebook ads on their web pages. So we immediately said, okay, anyone who's even remotely sketchy, no way are you going to be able to use our tools to monetize. Okay, so the, the amount of money that they made went down, and that made it so that some of the efforts slowed down. Then, you know, they're trying to pump this content into, uh, into Facebook with the hopes that people will, will click on it and, and see ads and make money, right? They're often not ideological. As our systems get better at detecting this, we show the content less, which drives the economic value for them down. And eventually you just get to a point where they go and do something else, right? There are always going to be spammers in the world, but by making it so that they can make less money, they're going to go do other stuff. And I think we're, we're getting closer and closer to that line and driving more people away. So that's the first category are spammers and people with an economic motive. The second category are state actors, right? So that's basically the Russian uh, interference effort. And that is basically a security problem, right? So that you know, you never fully solve it, but you strengthen your defenses. Um, they're not doing it for money, but you make it harder and harder. You you get rid of the, the fake accounts and the tools that they have for using this. You know, we can't do this all by ourselves. So we try to work with local governments everywhere who um, have more tools to, to punish them and have more insight into what is going on across their country uh, so that they can tell us what to focus on. And that one, I feel like we're making good progress on too. Then there's the third category. So once you get past economic spammers and state actors, the third one, which is the most nuanced, are basically real media outlets who are probably saying what they think is true, but just have varying levels of, of accuracy or trustworthiness in what they're saying. And that, I think, is actually the most challenging portion of, of the, the issue to deal with. Because there, I think, there are, there are 
are, are quite large free speech issues, right? Where you get into, you know, folks are saying stuff that that may be wrong, but like they mean it, right? They think that they're speaking their truth. And do you really want to shut them down for doing that? So we've been probably the most careful on that piece. But recently this year, we've rolled in a number of changes to newsfeed that try to boost in the ranking broadly trusted news sources. So what that basically means is we've, we've surveyed people uh, across the whole community and asked them you know, whether they trust uh, different news sources. So take you know, the Wall Street Journal or New York Times. You know, even if not everyone reads them, the people who don't read them typically still think that they're good, trustworthy journalism. Whereas if you get uh, down to blogs that may be on, the, on more of the fringe, um, they'll have their, their strong supporters, but people who don't necessarily read them um, often don't trust them as much. And by applying that kind of a, a lens on this, you know, we know that people in our community want broadly trusted content. Um, that is helping to uh, surface more of the things that, that, are, that are building common ground uh, in our society and maybe pushing out a, a little bit of the stuff that is less trustworthy, even though we're going to continue to be very sensitive to not um, suppress people's ability to, to say what they, what they believe. So one thing I hear when you give me that taxonomy is, okay, so you have the first run of fake news, which is a business problem. There, there's a business of doing fake news, and the way you can staunch that is, is taking away the money. Then you have a technical problem that is around state actors running massive disinformation campaigns. This third group, which is the conceptual problem, I, I do think is really interesting. And and one thing I hear when I hear that, because I'm somebody who came up as a blogger and had a lot of love for the idea of the open internet and, and the way the gates were falling down, is that that also creates a huge return to incumbency. If you're the New York Times and you've been around for a long time and you're well-known, uh, people trust you. And if you're some new upstart, and I don't, you know, now Vox has been around that uh, enough that I'm not doing any special pleading here, but if you're somebody who wants to begin a media organization two months from now, if Facebook is the way people get their news and the way Facebook ranks its news feed is news people already trust, it's going to be a, a lot harder for new organizations to break through. I, I think that that's an important point that we spend a lot of time thinking about, right? Because one of the great things about about the internet and the services that we're trying to build are you're giving everyone a voice, right? That's that's so deep in, in our mission that we care about this. We definitely think about that in all the changes that we're making. I think it's important to keep in mind that of all the strategies that I just laid out, they're made up of many different actions which each have relatively subtle effects, right? So the broadly trusted shift that I just mentioned, it changes um, how much something might be seen, I don't know, just it, it call it in the range of maybe 20% more or less, right? But it's not going to make it so that you know you, you can't share what you think, so that you that if, if someone wants to uh, have access to your content, that they're not going to get at it. What we're really trying to do is, is make it so that the content that people see is actually really meaningful to them. And you know, one of the things that I think we, we often get criticized for is in, incorrectly in this case, is people say, hey, you know, you're just ranking the system based on you know, what people like and click on. And it turns out that's actually not true. You know, we moved past that many years back because there was this issue with clickbait on the internet where there were a bunch of publications that would, that would push content into, uh, into Facebook and essentially people would, would click on them because they had sensational titles, but then would not feel good about having read uh, that content, 
where they'd feel like, hey, this wasn't actually what the headline said it was going to be. This was a waste of time. So that was one of the first times that that those basic metrics around clicks, likes, and comments on, on the content really stopped working to help us show the most meaningful content. So the way that this actually works today broadly is we have panels of hundreds or, or thousands of people who come in and we show them all the content that their friends and pages who they follow uh, have shared. And we ask them to rank it, right? And basically say, what were the most meaningful things that you wish were at the top of feed? And then we try to design algorithms that just map to what people are actually telling us is meaningful to them, not what they click on, um, not what is going to make us the most revenue, but what people actually find meaningful and valuable. So when we're making shifts like the broadly trusted um, shift to help build common ground, the reason why we're doing that is because it actually maps to what people are telling us they want at a deep level. That turns out to be the right tactic to get there um, in this case. But I don't think, you know, as a blogger, as a publisher, you need to worry at all that the people who want to see your content are not going to be able to see it. That's that's our whole job is to make it so that that people can can connect with the things that they want to. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. One, one of the things that has been coming up a lot in the conversation is whether the business model of roughly monetizing user attention is what is letting in a lot of these problems. Tim Cook, the, the CEO of Apple, gave, a, gave an interview the other day, and he was asked, what would you do if you were in Mark Zuckerberg's shoes? He said, I would not be in Mark Zuckerberg's shoes. Apple sells products to users. It doesn't sell users to, to advertisers. And so it's a, a sounder business model that doesn't open itself to these problems. Do you think part of the problem here is the business model where attention ends up dominating uh, above all else. And so anything that can engage does have at least some powerful value within the ecosystem. You know, I I find that argument that if you're not paying, that somehow we can't care about you to be extremely glib, right? And and not at all aligned with the truth. You know, the, the reality here is that if you want to build a service that helps connect everyone in the world, then there are a lot of people who can't afford to pay. And therefore, as with a lot of media, having an advertising-supported model is the only rational model that that can support uh, building the service to, to reach people. And that doesn't mean that, we don't, that we're not primarily focused on, on serving people. I think probably to the, the dissatisfaction of our sales team here, um, and I make all of our decisions based on what's going to matter to our community and improve the experience and focus 
much less, you know, and very little on the advertising side of the of the business. But I mean, look, if you want to build a service which is not just serving rich people, then you need to have something that people can afford. You know, I thought Jeff Bezos had an excellent saying on this when in one of his Kindle launches a number of years back. He said, there are companies that work hard to charge you more, and there are companies that work hard to charge you less. And at Facebook, we are squarely in the camp of the companies uh, that work hard to charge you less and provide a free service that everyone can use. I don't think at all that that means that that we don't care about people. I think to the contrary, um, I think it's important that we don't all get Stockholm syndrome and let the companies that work hard to charge you more convince you that they actually care more about you because that's that sounds ridiculous to me. So I want to say before I ask this next question that at some point during this podcast, this podcast is going to break and I'm going to say an ad for something that is going to be probably totally bizarre within the context of this conversation. So I am I am also within an advertising model and I have a lot of sympathy for the advertising model. But I also think the advertising model can blind us. I think it can it, it creates incentives that we do operate under and that we do justify backwards towards. And one of the the, the questions I do ask is whether diversifying the model doesn't make sense. If I understand and and I might not the WhatsApp model, which is also part of Facebook, uh, is subscription, right? People pay about dollar a year or some or month, and it, it's a small amount. No, we we actually we actually got rid of that. No, but, well, see, there you go. But yes, shows but, what but I keep know. going. Keep going. But but the, but the point, the broader point I want to make is that you don't need to only serve rich people to diversify away from it just being about attention. And when it is about attention, when it is about advertising, we do over time need to show growth to Wall Street. And and I do think you guys do, even if you do have an unusual uh, voting share structure that does pull you towards getting more and more and more of people's attention over time. I I did an interview with Tristan Harris, who's been a critic of of Facebook and other platforms in Silicon Valley. Um, And we're talking about the way in which you, you had said that some of the changes you're making have brought down a little bit the amount of time people are spending on the platform. And he said, you know, it's great, but he couldn't do that by 50%. Wall Street would freak out. His board would freak out. There are costs to this model. And and I do wonder how you think about at least protecting yourself against some of them dominating in the long run. Well, I think our responsibility here is to make sure that the time that people spend on, on Facebook is time well spent. But we don't have teams who who have, uh, you know, as their primary goal, like make it so that people spend more time. The way that we that I design the goals for the teams is that you try to build the best experience that you can. And what we find is that when people have a better experience on Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp than whatever the alternative is that they could be doing, or whether that's watching TV or doing something else. That I think naturally over time, if they're finding that experience valuable, then they'll spend more time there. Um, but I, I don't think it's really right to assume that people spending time on a service is, is bad. Um, but at the same time, I also think maximizing the time that people spend is not really the goal either. You know, one of the things that we've found in the last year, when we, we've done a lot of research into what drives well-being for people, right? And what uses of, of social networks are positive and are correlated with you know, happiness and long-term measures of health and all the measures of well-being that you'd expect and, and what areas are, are, are not as positive. And the thing that we've found is that you can kind of break out 
Facebook and social media use into two categories. One is where people are connecting and building relationships, even if it's subtle, right? Even if it's, you know, I, I post a photo and someone I haven't talked to in a while comments, it may not be a you know, super deep interaction, but, you know, that person is, is reminding me that they care about me and we're having an interaction. Uh, and even if I hadn't talked to that person in a while, it's, it's nice, right, to, to kind of remind each other that you care. The other part of what, of the use is basically content consumption, right? So that's watching videos, uh, reading news, passively consuming content in a way where you're not actually interacting with anyone or building a relationship while you're doing that. And what we find is that the things that are, that are about interacting with people and building relationships end up being correlated with all of the measures of, of long-term well-being that you'd expect. Whereas the things that are, are primarily just about content consumption, even if they're informative or entertaining and people say they like them, are not as correlated with the long-term measures of, of well-being. So this is another shift that we've made in newsfeed in our systems this year, is to prioritize showing more content from your friends and family first. Right? So that way, you'll, you'll be more likely to have interactions that are, that are meaningful to you uh, and that more of the time that you're spending is building is building those relationships. That change actually took time spent down a little bit, right? That was that, that was part of what I was talking about on on that earnings call, or at least, you know, we don't make these changes all at once. So I think at the earnings call, I was talking about a, an early version of that, and then there's there's more there. But over the long term, you know, even if if time spent goes down, but people are spending more time on Facebook, actually building relationships with people who they care about, then that's going to build a stronger community and build a stronger business over the long term, regardless of Wall Street, what Wall Street thinks about it in the near term. So, you know, that's what our incentive is, is to, to make sure that we build the best service and that it's, that it's good for people. And, 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 and we're trying to do this for the community over the long term, not the next quarter. I want to ask you another question about the advertising model. And this one is a trickier question to ask because it, it bears very directly on my industry. But something I've seen in the coverage in the past couple of days has been a perception at Facebook that a lot of the critical coverage from the media comes from journalists angry that Facebook is, is, is pretty well decimating the advertising market that journalism depends on. Um, the Dow Jones publisher, Will Lewis, said that the diversion of advertising is, is killing news and, and that it has to stop. Is he right or wrong? And, and, and given that so much of the advertising on Facebook is around news that journalism organizations are paying to publish, what, what responsibility do you feel you have to the people creating real news for their business model to work, given that what their business model creates does, in fact, lead to value not just for the world but for Facebook itself? So I, I do think a big responsibility that we have is to help support high-quality journalism. And that's not just the, the big traditional institutions, but a big part of what I, what I actually think about when I'm thinking about high-quality journalism are, is local news, right? And I, yep. I think that there are almost two different strategies in terms of how you, how you address that. For the larger institutions, and maybe even some of the smaller ones as well, subscriptions, I think, is really a key, a key point on this. A lot has changed with the internet. Um, it's not just social media. It's that now everyone has a voice. There's just a lot more competition. You know, if you were the New York Times before the internet, um, then you were by far the biggest game in town in in New York, right? And, and advertisers and readers who wanted to um, understand what was going on needed to get your content. Now the opportunity is broader, right? So they could reach more people. But there's also just way more competition. That is a challenge. But what I think uh, a lot of these these business models are moving towards are a higher percentage of subscriptions where the people who are getting the most value from you 
are contributing a disproportionate amount to the revenue. And there are certainly a lot of things that we can do on Facebook to help people, to help these news organizations drive subscriptions. And that's certainly been a lot of the work that that we've done and we and we have and will continue doing. Local news, I think some of the solutions there might be a little bit different, but I think it's easy to, to lose track of how important this is. And there's been a lot of conversation about civic engagement changing and I think it's people can lose sight of how closely tied that can be to local news. But in a in a town with a, a a strong local newspaper, people are much more informed and are much more likely to be civically active. So this ends up being important, um, not just for informing people, but for having a well functioning democracy. And that's one of the things where on on Facebook we've taken steps to uh, to show more local news to people who are in who live in those areas. That was a big shift that we that we made this year. But also working with them specifically, creating funds to support them, and working on both subscriptions and ads there should hopefully create a more thriving ecosystem. Well, I want to go here from the the local to the very global ambitions. I've I've been thinking a lot in preparing for this interview about the 2017 manifesto you wrote, where you said that you wanted Facebook to help humankind take its next step. And you said, quote, that progress now requires humanity coming together not just as cities or nations, but also as a global community. And then you said that Facebook could be the, the the social infrastructure for that. In retrospect, I think a key question here has become whether creating infrastructure where all the tensions of countries and ethnicities and regions and ideologies can more easily collide into each other will actually help us become that, that global community or will further tear us apart. Has your thinking on that changed at all over the past year, year and a half? Sure. I mean, I, I think since I wrote that, we've we've certainly learned more about how to do this. But the big thing that I was thinking about when I wrote that was how the world coming closer together is not a given. Right? For most of Facebook's existence, in 2004 when I got started, you know, if you'd told me that people weren't going to keep connecting more and that there wouldn't be more global cooperation. I mean, I, I kind of had taken that as a given, that the world would move in that direction. I think over the last few years, the political reality has been that a lot of people are feeling left behind by, by globalization and different issues. And there's been a big rise of isolationism um, and nationalism that I think threatens some of the global cooperation that will be required to solve some of the bigger issues, like maintaining peace, addressing climate change, eventually collaborating a lot in accelerating science and, and curing diseases and eliminating poverty. Um, so I kind of take it as, this is a huge part of our mission, is that I think a lot of these problems require people coming together and having a global uh, understanding. You know, one of the things that, that I always, that I found heartening is if you ask millennials what they identify the most with, it's not, it's not their nationality or, or even their ethnicity. It's the, the, the plurality identify as a citizen of the world. And I think that that's strong. And that's that, I think, reflects the values of, of where we need to go um, in order to solve some of these bigger questions. So now the question is, how do you do that? I think it's clear that just helping people connect by itself isn't always positive. When you give people a tool, it's more positive than negative. Clearly, there, there's a lot of good things that happen, but then there's also abuse and there are bad things that happen. And a much bigger part of the focus for me now is making sure that as we're connecting people, we are helping to build bonds and bring people closer together 
rather than just focused on the mechanics of the connection and the infrastructure, as you say. But I think that there's there's a number of different pieces that you need to do here. Civic society basically starts bottom up, right? You need to have well-functioning groups and communities. We're very focused on that. You need a well-informed citizenry. So we're very focused on making sure that that the quality of, of journalism and and that everyone has a voice and that people can can get access to to the content that they need. Um, that I think is end, ends up being really important. Civic engagement, both being involved in elections and increasingly working to eliminate interference and and, and different nation states trying to interfere in each other's elections ends up being really important. And then I think uh, part of what we need to do is work on some of the new types of governance questions that we started out this conversation with, because um, there hasn't been a community like this that has spanned so many different countries, and that's an open question, but I think someone will need to work that out. So those are some of the things that that I'm focused on, but you know, right now, a lot of people aren't aren't as focused on on connecting the world or, or bringing countries closer together as as maybe they were a few years back, and I, I still view that as an important part of of our vision for where the world should go. That we do what we can to stay committed to that and stay keep that a, as positive of a thing as possible, and and hopefully can um, help the world move in that direction. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. One of the scary stories I've read about Facebook over the past year is that it had become a, a real source of anti-Rohingya propaganda in Myanmar and, and thus become accidentally part of an, you know, an, ethnic, an ethnic cleansing. One of the things that was said during that story was by Phil Robertson, who's a deputy director of Human Rights Watch in Asia. And the point he was making was that Facebook is dominant for news information in Myanmar, but it's not an incredibly important market for Facebook. It doesn't get the attention that when something goes wrong in America, that we give things that go wrong in America. I doubt you you have a proportionate amount of staff in Myanmar to what you have in America. He, and he said that you guys end up being like an absentee landlord in Southeast Asia. Is Facebook too big to manage its global scale in some of these other countries, the ones we don't always talk about in this conversation effectively? So one of the things that I think we need to get better at as we grow is becoming a more global company. You know, we have offices all over the world, 
and, and a lot of different places. We're already quite global. But, you know, just based on the fact that we're, you know, our headquarters is here in California and you know, the vast majority of our community is not even in the U.S., I think does make this just a constant challenge for, for us to make sure that we're putting due attention on, on all of the people in, in different parts of the community around the world. The Myanmar issues have, I think, gotten a lot of focus inside the company. And they're, they're real issues, and we take this really seriously. I mean, one of the, you know, I remember, you know, one Saturday morning, I got a phone call, and, you know, we detected that people were trying to spread sensational messages uh, through, it was Facebook Messenger in this case, to each side of the conflict, basically telling the Muslims, hey, there's about to be an uprising of, of the Buddhists, so you know, make sure that that you are armed and go to this place. And then the the same thing on the on the other side. So that's the kind of thing where I think it is clear that people were trying to use our tools in order to in order to incite real harm. Now, in that case, you know, we our systems detect that that's going on. We stop those messages from going through, and hopefully, we're able to to prevent any kind of real world harm there. But I mean, this is certainly something that we're paying a lot of attention to. It's a real issue. Uh, and and we want to make sure that all of the tools that we're bringing to bear on on eliminating hate speech, inciting violence, and, and basically protecting the integrity of civil discussions uh, that we're doing in, in places like Myanmar, as well as places like the U.S. that do get a disproportionate amount of the attention. I think if you go back a couple of years in in technology world and technology rhetoric, a lot of the slogans people had that we all read optimistically have come to take on darker connotations too. Uh, the idea that anything is possible, the anything has become wider. Or the idea that, that you want to make the world more open and connected. I think it's become more obvious that an open and connected world could be a better world and it, and it could be a worse world. So when you think about the 20-year time frame, what will you be looking for to see if Facebook succeeded, if it made the world a better place? Well, I don't think it's going to take 20 years. You know, I think the the basic point that you're getting at is that we're really idealistic, right? And when we started, you know, I think we thought about how good it would be if people could connect, um, if everyone had a voice. I mean, these are values that I think are, are broadly shared. And frankly, I just think we didn't spend enough time investing in or thinking through some of the downside uses of, of the tools. You know, for the first 10 years of the company, people were getting these new tools and ability to connect with people and, and share new kinds of content and new experiences. And it was, you know, everyone was just focused on the positive. And then I think for the last couple of years, as this has become a new normal, right, as having, having a lot of these, these tools, like now people are appropriately focused on some of the risks and downsides as well. And I think we were too slow in investing enough in that. It's not like we, we did nothing. I mean, it's um, the beginning of last year, I think we might've had 10,000 people working on security. So I mean, that's a lot. But by the end of this year, we're going to have 20,000 people working on security. In terms of resolving a lot of these issues, you know, I think it's just a case where we, because we didn't invest enough, I think we will dig through this hole, but it will take a few years. I wish I could solve all these issues in, in three months or six months, but I just think the reality is that solving some of these questions is just going to take a longer period of time. Now, the, the good news there is that we really started investing more you know, at least a year ago. So if it's going to be a three-year process, then you know, I think we're about a year in already. And hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have really started to turn the corner on some of these issues. 
but it's going to be a long a long term thing. And like any security issue, you never fully solve it. You just make it harder for people to do bad things. But getting back to your question, in terms of over the long term, how do we judge uh, whether the impact of this is? You know, I think human nature is generally positive. I'm, I'm an optimist in that way. But there's no doubt that our responsibility is to amplify the good parts of what people can do when they connect and to mitigate and prevent uh, the bad things that people might do to try to abuse each other. And over the long term, I think that that's the big question, is how have we enabled people to come together in new ways, um, whether that's creating new jobs, creating new businesses, spreading new ideas, promoting a more open discourse, allowing good ideas to to spread through society more quickly than they might have otherwise. And on the other side, did we do a good job of of preventing the abuse, right? Of making it so that, you know, governments aren't interfering in in each other's civic elections and um, and, and processes like that. Are we eliminating or, or at least dramatically reducing things like hate speech that are offensive that um, maybe when people come to contact, um, even if they're connecting, it's it's actually having a divisive effect. And I, you know, standing here, even though we're in the middle of a lot of issues, and I certainly think we we could have done a better job uh, so far. I'm optimistic that we're going to address a lot of those challenges, um, and that we'll get through this. And that when you look back five years from now, ten years from now, I do think that people will look at the the net effects. Of, um, of being able to connect online and, and have a voice and, and share what matters to them, that that's just a massively positive thing in the world. Thank you to Mark Zuckerberg for being on the program. Thank you to my engineer, Griffin Tanner, to my producer, Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we will be back next week. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 